John was just one of those that just, he was, if you tried to take him down or do, he, he would, there would be a fight on the way down. I mean, he was just, uh, he was, he didn't look tough, but he was, he was extremely mean. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. This is your host, Ryan Warner. It's Tuesday, January 24th. Our guest today is Corey Bays. Corey was an All-American at Oklahoma State back in the 80s. But this interview was recorded for the Smiths audio documentary back on August 12, 2020. This interview has never been released in its entirety. It is one of my favorite interviews from the 30-plus interviews we did when working on the Smiths. If you haven't listened to the Smiths, it's our most listened to audio documentary. Go back to episode 200. And the reason we interviewed Corey is that Corey was John Smith's roommate at Oklahoma State. So this interview is all about John Smith from Corey Bays' perspective. I really hope you enjoy it. I can't wait for you to hear all the insight Corey shares about the great John W. Smith. The reason we're releasing some old episodes is that I'm currently heads down on an audio documentary on Henry Cejudo, which is going to air this spring. It's our sixth audio documentary, and I can't wait for you guys to hear that one. So in the meantime, please enjoy this interview with Corey Bays who's now the president for Assurance Marketing on Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Fan of the week goes to Ted Carroll, a high school wrestling coach out in Milton, Mass. He has three daughters, and he listens to this podcast while traveling the Mass Pike to watch them play. Ted, thank you so much for listening and for sharing. Let's give it up for Ted Carroll from Milton, Mass. Now let's get to this episode with Corey Bays. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners. Who are we, who are we hearing from here? Uh, my name's Corey Bays. Um, I basically wrestled for uh, Oklahoma State um, starting in uh, 1985. Uh, I just graduated from high school from Putnam City North. Um, basically uh, redshirted my, my uh, first year up at Oklahoma State and then obviously was a four-time starter, um, obviously an All-American, and um, currently um, I run a family business. I have for uh, the past 
28 years. I'm president of uh, Assurance Marketing is the name of our company. But, uh, and that's, I've got two, I've uh, got a son and a daughter. I'm Jack and Ellie. They're, my son's 24 and my daughter's 21. She's finishing up at uh, Oklahoma State. Well, so how did you initially meet John Smith? Uh, you know, John, uh, I met him, met his family. Um, I think I knew his, his father, uh, Leroy before, uh, John, but, you know, growing up these grade school tournaments, these elementary tournaments, you know, John's father, Leroy kind of ran these, uh, these tournaments in Dell city and Midwest city. And just, and these small tournaments, you know, were huge. You know, back then you thought they were just, you know, huge, but again, they're just, they were just small elementary, uh, weekend, round, round, weekend. Yeah. And just, but, you know, definitely you, you continued to wrestle the same kids every weekend, but it was every single weekend you were, you were going somewhere within the state of Oklahoma, uh, competing with these. And I first met John, um, he wrestled for the Southside Chiefs, which is a, uh, you know, back then they were, uh, they were the the thing. They were the they were the badasses, if you will, of the of Oklahoma City. And if you were a Southside Chief uh, uh, participant, you, you if you made that team, you were a bad. And John, you know, being from Dell City, and uh, was he a blue chipper? Like, was he a stud stud, or was Leroy more the stud, and John was kind of coming around? You know, they were two totally different, you know, Leroy at the time was in college, um, you know, at OSU and was, you know, uh, he was superstar then. And, and, and John was kind of the, the young brother that was, you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, he had a, I remember grade school, some of the coaches, you know, said, you don't want to wrestle that guy. He, he'll, he'll hurt you. He'll rip your, you know, arms off or your, your neck. He had a, a chin whip that he, was legal at the time, but they out, you know, they kind of dismissed it because of John was just one of those that just, he was, if you tried to take him down or do, he, he would, there would be a fight on the way down. I mean, he was just, uh, he was, he didn't look tough, but he was, it was extremely mean. Even back mat. then? Even back then, even high school, you bet. What, what grade, so is, I've heard that at Dell City, the fourth grade, the program started in fourth grade, and all the elementary schools had little dual teams. And then in junior high, they had that as well. Whereas now it's all club stuff, right? right you don't right. wrestle for your school. So it was the Southside Chiefs. What grade are we talking here? We're probably talking uh, it, not even in junior high. Junior high back then was seventh, eighth, and ninth. This was below, you know, probably fifth grade, fourth, fifth, and sixth uh, grades. And, and some of those uh, kids on that Southside Chiefs team. Um, and it's, I wrestled for the, uh, Tri-City, um, I think we were Tri-City Titans. Everybody, every team had a name. Um, and the Southside Chiefs had all the, the kids that went to, to Moore or Dell City or, um, Choctaw or Carl Albert. I mean, they just kind of dispersed, but they were really the Southside kids. And there were, you know, I look back on some of those grade school teams, the kids that were on that. And a lot of those kids went to college with, you know, um, either to Central State with a full ride or o Oklahoma State. Um, 
but a lot of those kids continued on after uh, grade school and went to, to wrestle either, you know, grade high schools. Because back then, wrestling was a huge deal in, in high school. I mean, everybody, these coaches didn't leave every year. You had the same coach, you know, for 10, 15 years, and those programs were dominant. Um, you know, Edmond had a really good program. Moore had a really good program. Dell City had a really good program. Um, where those, you know, those have diminished just because, you know, of different things. Um, the youth program doesn't seem to be as structured as it was. I mean, that's, and USA Wrestling started in Oklahoma. So all the youth tournaments you see going on in every other state now, that model started in Oklahoma. And so you said it, high school wrestling in Oklahoma was huge back then. Um, and, and mainly it was huge because there was such a, uh, you know, the, the support from the coaches, you know, the, the little league programs that you started in, the Y, you know, the U, you know, Northside Y. And, and uh, I mean, there were just so many parents that got involved too with their, their kids. And, and again, it, they traveled all over the place with them. And, um, and a lot of these wrestlers, you know, didn't want to play basketball. They, they were maybe either too small or, or didn't want to play football. Um, so, you know, wrestling was just a perfect fit for them. Um, even if they played football to get, you know, stay active, they didn't want to play basketball or something. But um, they, it, it, was a, it was a good program that if you could cut it, you were going to be better. You're going to be good at whatever you want to do. Right. Just because of the mental aspect, the physical aspect. And, you know, it, it's, it's tough to learn and it's a tough, you got to be tough to be a wrestler. Tough. <laughs> There's no other way around just, it. It's no other way to around. You're right. You got to no. be tough. And now you talk about John being feared as an elementary school wrestler. Did you befriend him then, or not until Oklahoma State? Uh, we were friends just because. Um, like sleepover on the weekend type friends or acquaintances? No, just acquaintances. I knew of him. I knew of his brother. You know, I was, Leroy was kind of a an idol of mine. You know, I really wasn't an Oklahoma State fan in the beginning, but I did like Leroy. I liked. You know, they had a heavyweight up there, Jimmy Jackson, that I, I loved. But I grew up an Oklahoma fan. Um, I, I, you know, I was a Roger Frizzell um, follower. You know, he was from Midwest City. Midwest City was, you know, dominant back then. Um, I forgot to include them in Southside Chiefs. I say Dell City, but Midwest City was, you know, they were the power um, back in those, those years, you know, in the early and late 80s. Andre Metzger was an OU guy. You know, you had Metzger, you had um, Schultz the there. Schultz brothers were there. Um, they had a, a, a assistant coach. His name's kind of leaving me right now, but he had assistant coach that was really big into freestyle. And that was something that, you know, I really was uh, wanted to, to learn more about. And, um, and he would come to our, uh, uh, freestyle programs and, and teach us, you know, during the the off season, and that's where I really got a lot better, learned a lot more, and I just, I don't know, once somebody that comes in and takes the time to do that, you just you learn to. Uh, Jim Humphreys was his name. Oh, the Olympic coach, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I had all through high school up until my junior year, um, Humphreys, I was I was going to be a, a OU guy. I mean, I really. And I know Mark Perry would even, it surprised him when I, 
chose OSU because he always thought I was uh, an OU guy. Mm -hmm. And I was. And it, I think my junior year or senior year, Humphreys left the university and went and became a head coach, I think, at Illinois uh, or another. Indiana. Indiana, that's right. Um, I just kind of lost my um, my drive for being OU since he was really my only um, guy that I th I was close to for that, and we had we had even talked about it. Hey, you're gonna you're gonna be a sooner, right? And at the time, I was really focused on, but I, it switched one hundred one hundred eighty degree turn when. Um, you had my senior year, which was uh, the year that John was a freshman. Um, he was a 126-pounder. They had, they had the dream team. Oh. Um, and going up there and seeing the crowds and the Michael Sheets and the Kenny Mondays and, and just, just it, the environment was so much different um, from the Lloyd Noble Center. Being in Gallagher, Iowa during some of those matches, I just said, this is, this is, this is where I need to be. Um, and to see John just right out of the gate from high school to college, that, you know, he didn't redshirt that year. He came in and was, you know, he was on fire. And, you know, and just to see that, it's like, man, I, he didn't do much. He was he was wrestling with me in high school a year before. You were more credentialed in high school, you know. So you're like, I can come right in too. So I hope I maybe I can come right on in, and, and if he can improve that much between his senior and freshman year, maybe I can do that too. Maybe there's something up here with Chesbro because I'd always heard that Chesbro was he didn't like freestyle. He thought that was would hurt your folk style, um, and he wasn't an all around. Rest, your year around wrestling wasn't big back then as it is now with all sports. It just was kind of on the brink of, of, of that. So that's really the, you know, in a, in a, what was the, you talk about the environment at Gallagher. So in 84, they had the dream team. They should have won, you know, um, Claire Anderson, you know, all these guys who were national champs in one year or another on that same team yep. sheets Monday, you mentioned them. Um, you talk about the environment at Gallagher, though. You know, Leroy Smith talks about it might be sold out the night before. People looking for tickets. You know, what do you remember from the atmosphere inside the, the arena on a big duel? You know, uh, the thing that would bring you—you you could. Uh, you, we were down. You'd always warm up down in the. They called it the dungeon. It was our workout room, and it was a dungeon. Um, but it was in the basement, below really the floor, and. You, you literally could hear the band playing and you could hear the crowd wrestling or kind of just muffled of people. But when those doors and we were really ready to run out and that duel would um, start, there's nothing more that would send, you know, chills, um, goosebumps all over your body as you run out and you look up and there's just thousands of people. Um, and you know, this is before they raised the roof. It would hold 8,000, but I'm telling you, it was packed. It was on the, people were on the floor. 
and we would run on the mat and me being the first first guy out there it was it it made you it was a sense of there ain't there's no, there's no way I'm going to lose tonight there's no way that somebody's going to come in here and 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 beat me tonight i've got number 1 this is the rowdiest place in the country these fans they're here to see you know at the time i they're they're here to see me perform they're here to see all of us perform and and they've driven a long way and they're fired up i'm going to i'm going to give them a show that's the kind of feeling it, you just had every night in front of your fans and i mean it was you talking about the the 12th man they were the 13th man uh, and it was it was incredible and i think everybody if you were to interview anybody on that team, any on any team during that era, they would all tell you the same thing: that it was a sense of, of just pride and just, you know, number one, it's prideful to even be on an Oklahoma State wrestling team because of the history and, but to to really be there and experience it and look up in the stands and just, you just, it's a feeling you just. It'll 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 never leave me. It's it's something that it's just a great memory. Of course, you talk about John from his senior year to his freshman year had improved, and then you come to OSU. How did it get to the point where you guys were living together? That's a great question. I still uh, my my dad had uh, I was living in the dorms my freshman year, my redshirt year, freshman year, and hated it. Um, in fact, the, the year prior to me um, going up there, they used to have what they call the, uh, the jock dorm, where all the athletes stayed in one, it was Iba, I think it was Iba Hall. Um, well, the wrestlers screwed that up for everybody because I guess that particular year, they tried to set the thing on fire or something happened where they just said, no more of this animal house. We're going to dismantle this. So the year I came as a freshman, they dismantled all that and, and put all the athletes, just scattered them, scattered them around campus. So I was in Scott Hall. Um, it was a, you know older dorm. It, it wasn't even one of the nicer ones. So, and I was... I, I kind of had a potluck. I didn't have a my didn't have a roommate, so uh, that I knew mm -hmm. he was in. Uh, I forget what his major was, but just a you know a brainiac guy that wasn't an athlete at all, and you know we were hardly we crossed paths a lot because of my schedule and his schedule. But so my dad had an idea of hey, why don't you know, you're on scholarship. Why don't we maybe you can live off campus, you know, after your freshman year, and we're going to maybe buy a house just from an uh, investment standpoint. And, you know, the, uh, maybe you can get a roommate and, you know, help offset the cost. And what do you think about that? That way you can really focus on school and, and you know, concentrate on wrestling. And I said, Sounds good to me. So that summer, um, we spent a lot of time looking around and found a little old uh, house that would, had been fairly uh, re newly renovated. 
and it was on Blakely, which is right down from the Kappa house. And I thought, you know, I need a, I need a roommate uh, or need somebody. And I, I can't remember what happened or how it all transpired, but, but John was in the process of, of, of looking for somewhere to live. And it just, hey, you know, I've got a, I need a roommate if you're interested in, and that's kind of how it kind of all started. And what do you remember about, like, take us inside the house. I heard that you had a collection of masks. Is that true? Well, yeah, I did have a collection of, of masks. Um, What's that about? What kind of masks? Like Indian masks? They were from masks from all over the world. Um, my aunt kind of, for Christmas one year, uh, when I was little, you know, younger, in grade school, every year she would get me uh, a different kind of mask. It might be from Poland, it might be from, you know, somewhere in Mexico, just from different places all the So I started collecting these, and when I went on these trips out of overseas or whatever, I would look for, you know, masks, and anyway, it just became a collection from all over the world. And I had this collection on the wall as you walk into the house. Well, I'll never forget when thinking back, you know, Leroy Sr. was pretty good with his, he was uh, he, craftsman. very good craftsman, worked great with his hands. And he moved, we moved John in, or he moved John in and, uh, he was taught, I was saying, I asked Mr. Smith, I said, I understand. Uh, yeah, I said, you know what? We need to, we need to get a bar or something right here in front of these masks. And, and Leroy Sr. says, well, Corey, I can, I can build you just about anything you want. What do you want? And I said, I want, I want to, I just want a bar where we can sit, put bar stools up here, have something behind here. And he, Right then, he got a piece of paper out and drew this. How big do you want it? How long do you want it? Do you want a place for a refrigerator? Do you want a place for, you know, uh, drinks and what all? So he, he, you know, wrote it all out, drew it all out. He says, I'll have it to you. Uh, uh, when do you need it? When do you want it? I said, you tell, I don't care when, whenever. <laughs> he came back. I, a couple weeks later with a truck and again he had a big uh, mouthful of you know uh, snuff uh, or dip or whatever and I remember him coming up to the front door and said well I got your bar you ready for it and it was an L-shaped bar we almost couldn't get it in the house it was so big but it fit perfectly on that wall and behind it, we had a place for a refrigerator. If you wanted to put a, a pony keg in there and serve it, you know, with a, you know, draft beer, it, it was awesome. It had lights. Um, I mean, it was just amazing. It had a linoleum top to it, linoleum. It was all made out of fresh cut wood, stained. Um, and it was the heaviest thing you, you could imagine. But, you know, it was just, that was his way of maybe saying, hey, you guys, thank you. Let's. You guys have a good time. Take and, it from here. And take it from here. You what guys. kind of beer would have been in that fridge back in those days? Bud Light. Did John drink? 
He had a few Bud Lights in his time, yes. Because uh... you read, you know, sometimes people overblow the focus of how, you know, hey, was he like Gable where Gable was like, you know, blinders on. But then I talked to Leroy and he's like, yeah, John kind of got that during that red, red shirt year in 85, 86 and afterwards. But how did you say his like social life or his focus changed over time when you saw him living in that house? You know, I think before, um, and I was kind of the same way, you know, you play hard or, you know, you work hard, you play hard. That was the Iowa mentality. Um, but after a certain time of the year, I just shut it off. I mean, I focused, you know, no drinking, no, I mean, I was so focused on just what I was doing and, and training and schoolwork that, you know, the, the parting aspect was just not even in my grasp. And it, John was kind of the same way, um, you know, in, in the early days we were living together, but you know, from time to time during Christmas break, or if there was a time where, you know, we felt like, Hey, you know, we can at least have a beer, you know, or celebrate or whatever, but it wasn't, you know, one of those animal house type deals. It was, it was pretty, pretty serious after mid October, we pretty much shut everything down until, you know, really after the season. I love it. And so you had, you walk in the house, you had the bar, it was on the right or the left. Basically you walk right in, and it, as soon as you walk in the house, there was a wall, and then there was a hallway to the kitchen. It was right off the side of the kitchen. So as you walk in, you just you see this bar, and then behind the bar, you had all these masks, and then we had lights and stuff up, so you could light it up, and it, you know it would be you know a focal point of the entrance of the house. That's badass. Um, any uh, anything else on the walls that adorn the house? Uh, I heard that John had these lacquer boxes he brought back from the Soviet Union? You know, we had a, uh, back then, uh, you know, TV units were a big deal, you know, shelving units, you, know, you put a TV in, and, you know, John had been to Russia uh, a couple times, to Blissey trips, different things, and, and those lacquer boxes were a big, um, shopkas, you know, the, the big hats with, with uh, the, the mink fur or whatever. Okay. Uh, he brought several several of those back, uh, and Leroy had been over there prior, so that he, he knew about the lacquer boxes and the, and the collectible things. There's not too many collectible things in Russia, but those are very, some are very very rare and very uh, hard to get. So those were definitely displayed, you know, firsthand on these uh, TV. Uh, like you said, the TVs used to be. Now they're sleek and they're sexy and they're thin, but then it was like a freaking piece of wood shelving, you know, yeah. like it was made of wood a lot of times. Yeah, and we had a, a big uh, armoire, if you will, a bunch of shelves and, and with, that the TV set in and then all of the, uh, you know, wrestling awards were displayed, you know, on that, uh, you know, on that TV unit. Last question about the house. Again, you read that you were the clean guy, he wasn't. Was it overblown how unclean he was? Because I would think he was like super disciplined. What was it like the the cleanliness between you two? I was probably too much over the top. Um, you know, they they even did an article in the paper of uh, the odd couple. You know, one one guy was messy, another guy was uh, a clean freak, and I guess I was a clean freak because I 
I wanted to, you know, I was really proud of the house. You know, I wanted to keep it nice. Um, but John, you know, getting in his world a little bit, he comes for such a big family that he's had to fight for everything, food or anything, um, with such a big family. And it wasn't really, he kept everything clean, but behind closed his room door, it was like a tornado. And I would just keep his door closed so I wouldn't have to, to worry about it or even look at it. That was his, that was his, that was his deal. And it, it worked. You know, I didn't, he didn't get in my space and I didn't get in his. And so, and we, it, it really, it really was kind of a fun, fun time. I mean, you guys lived together for a number of years. Um, were you, did you work out at all in the room? Cause you were so close in weight. You know, he was, I was 118. He was, you know, 136. Uh, we would drill. We wouldn't really, uh, wrestle, but we definitely would drill lightly and, and, uh, go on runs and sprints and, you know, uh, lift together. Um, but as far as, you know, actually hooking it up, we, we, it, there was, that was just too much of a weight variance there. So was Jerry Hickman on the team, his drill partner? Um, no, he was our uh, equipment manager. So he would go with John and let John drill and not drill back from what I hear. Hickman, uh, Jerry and I were basically, a, uh, at the same weight in grade school. I wrestled him all through grade school. And, um, and he was really a guy that idled John, he, he idled all the Smiths, but his way of contributing was he, you know, nobody wants to, you know, do the dishes, so to speak. So he, he basically, um, he became our equipment manager. He would wash all of our dirty, you know, after practice, you know, just nasty gear and have it all fresh and ready to go the next day. And, you know, after hours, John would come down to the workout room, you know, after practice or, or late at night. And he would, you know, tell Hickman, you know, you don't have an, an option. You're going to come drill with me. I'm just going to practice my low single and I want you to do that. And, and, and Jerry, Jerry loved that. I mean, he loved the fact that he could, that was his way of being a part of John's success and really kind of, you know, he, he was a wrestler up until high school, but he was not good enough to, to be on the, uh, you know, division one level. So he just wanted to be a part of it. He just wanted to be a part of it. And was it unusual for midnight 2 a.m. workouts? Absolutely. But that's, again, that was John's way of, of mentally getting his mind acclimated to a point that I might be in some other country and it's going to be, you know, seven o'clock at night, but here it's two o'clock. There's somebody over there that's they're already up and working out. So I need to, you know, I need to, and that was just his way of, uh, not everybody's like that. I, I you know, I, I, you'd never find me at two o'clock in the morning working out. Um, he would do that to get the edge though? He would do that, I think, mentally to to help him. Uh, and he was he was a night owl. I mean, he did a lot of the things, you know, late at night. Um, but one of them, before he was really uh, training for the Olympics, you know, that or the Goodwill Games that first year, he started doing, you know, a lot of just things. I think to help him mentally, 
and that was one thing that uh hey i don't need to sleep i need to be i need to be you know practicing my shots i need to you know uh, if he does this how how is he going to react and just different scenarios on if i get into a low single situation how do i finish it if he if he does this or if he does i mean he had a solution for any reaction that that wrestler could possibly do in every scenario on each on the right leg or left leg if you went right he knew how to defend that he knew he just he had done it so much and so often um and that's what jerry hickman kind of spent hours and hours even in our front living room you know when he couldn't get into the gym or they locked him out or whatever he would they'd move the furniture and and do it in our living room no way what was your reaction i'm trying to figure out when the low single started right some people say leroy did it you know for this story we're just going to go with the fact that john did it and he's told john told a story that he was with jerry one time drilling it was like late at night and he had a goal in his mind to do 100 sweep singles and somewhere at like number 90 he was getting pretty tired and he kind of just fell into the low single you know and um, that's when John says he first started doing it. When did you first hear the term low single or what was your reaction to it when he showed you the first time? You know, he, he, and again, this could be totally wrong, but that's okay. I, I really remember the low single, uh, when what's the guy from Nebraska Sanchez, you know, John had a problem with Sanchez and I remember sitting in a hotel room with John after Sanchez had beat him and he was literally writing uh, in a no on a notepad and I had come in the room and I he had, he had lost in the finals and this is the year that he had won the Goodwill Games you know that summer. It was a duel at Lincoln yeah so it was, that was in July and then the first duel of the year was in Lincoln in November. And Mark Perry was coaching Gill, and then Gill beat him in the first duel of the year. Well, he beat him in this open tournament, uh, you okay. know, that they were in. Gotcha. And I remember, I remember, I mean, he said, he said, Corey, I'm never going to let that happen ever again. He said, from this day forward, I'm going to, I'm not going to win a match by one or two points. I'm going to dominate people. I'm going to just, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I mean, just punish him. And I'm going to separate myself from, from being good to being great. And he said, that, that's never, this will never happen again. And he said, I'm going to perfect, you know, this, this low single. And because in my mind, most people, when they shoot a low single, their head is down, and by the time they get to, you know, the ankle or the low, uh, you know, you're looking really towards the mat instead of looking really up like they teach you. So you've got to get down really low when you shoot to stay perpendicular to the mat so you will actually attack where you're supposed to attack. And John was so limber anyway, he would lower his chain, lower his... Uh, you know, level almost as low as you possibly humanly can go. Um, 
and then he would, you know, make that shot, and his focus was not just hitting between the, you know, the foot and the shin or the sh foot and the knee. It was almost at the ankle. And if he got behind your ankle, you're done because number one, you can't, you, you can't sprawl and you're going to have to fall over the, and he would try to number one, you know, get down so low and literally just almost like a laser beam attack your ankle and then come right up between your, you know, the legs and then try to finish. And he, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to have the best low single of anybody. He said, I'm going to per per perfect this to the point where nobody, I'll take anybody down. And he just, you know, he would spar by himself. I mean, he would, that's really the turning point for me with John is that that for him to be on such a cloud nine beating the Russian at the Goodwill Games um, and coming back really at the start of the season, he was, wouldn't say he was out of shape, but he wasn't in collegiate shape. And it was, a, freestyle is completely different scoring than, so when he went to this open tournament and Gil Sanchez, you know, beat him pretty good, um, you know, everybody, it got everybody's attention. Oh, Gil Sanchez beat, just beat John Smith, a, a goodwill game. I mean, it, it embarrassed him. I think it truly embarrassed him to a point where he said, this is never going to happen again. And he did not let it ever happen again. How big ever. was the Goodwill Games win when he won that? Was that pretty mad? Because the Goodwill Games now doesn't really mean anything to us because we weren't around for it. Well, they're, really the two that you remember are Seattle and, and the one in, in Russia. Moscow, yeah. Because it was the first of its kind and it was, a, it was on CNN. I mean, it was a big deal. It was like, you know, in between uh, Olympic year or something. Every, you know, it's going to be every two years after the Olympics, you know, they were going to try to space it out. So it, it was in a lot of people's minds, you know, the Olympics and that, and that it was, those were, well, we had, we had, it had been since 1976, since the Soviets and the Americans had been together, you know, cause 80, we boycotted 84, they boycotted. So right. we hadn't been together in a big time was, event. And it was, it was a, you know, it was a big deal because the Russians had some of the best wrestlers in the world. And we are we were just kind of up and coming. Some of these, you know, Americans, and you know, and they were just most of them from the good ones were from Oklahoma State and Iowa. Mm -hmm. that were on this team. Yeah. So, you know, when when he made the team, you know, it was it was like, man, this is this is unbelievable, you know. But I, I don't know if he can. This scrawny kid from you know from Dell City, you know that, you know. I just don't know how he's going to fare in this world competition. And it was, he, he smoked everybody. <laughs> and Zayev, who he beat, won the world championships that year in 86. John didn't wrestle in the 86 world championships. Like you said, came back, wrestled Gil. What do you remember about Gil and why he gave John fits? You know, Gil was, uh, he was, um, very unorthodox. Very, his style was clashing with John. He was tall and lanky, and John, he, he just didn't react the way normal wrestlers, you know, that John wrestled in the past. You know, everybody has that wrestler that just is, 
you go, God, this guy's just not normal. He doesn't react the right way and just all, nothing seems to work. And I think Gil frustrated John because he wrestled a lot of times on one knee, which was very strange. He did things that were just not normal to your common wrestlers. And I think that frustrated John, of how do I attack this guy? How do I, and, and Gil was quick, he was strong. He was a lot bigger than John. He cut a lot of weight. And John had just moved up to 136. It was kind of a new weight for him. And uh, Gil just, just, that, just manhandled him the first few times. Um, and I think Mark was working with Gil and, and really he knew how to beat John. It's his brother-in-law, you know? I mean, he was, not that he was trying to make that, but he was telling, you know, Gil, this is what you need to do to beat John Smith. And he, he, he you know, he did that up until the finals of the national tournament. How do you, rem- I mean, do you remember it being a, a piece of conversation that night that, hey, Mark Perry's coaching over there? Or was it just, because I mean, Kathy, when I interviewed Kathy, she's like, I was pissed at him. I was pissed at Mark because he was coaching against John too hard. But you know, Mark's loyal to his guy. But as teammates going into it, were you kind of like giving John a hard time? Like, hey, you got to co- wrestle against your brother-in-law tonight. You know, Mark is competitive. He wants to win. Um, John wants to win. Um, I didn't really look at it that way. I didn't view it as um, you can't you can't do that to your brother-in-law. You can't do that to. Mark's going to do what Mark's going to do, and he's going to, he's going to, everybody wants to win. No one wants to lose. And all John was, all Mark was doing was his job is he was trying to get his wrestler into a position so he could win. Yeah. And I didn't really, I don't think anybody felt that Mark was, you know, going against the family by, you know, doing that uh, at all. Well, the competitiveness that you mentioned, that seems to be something where when, when I ask people, you know, more generic questions like, how is John Smith so good? They go, well, he's worked crazy hard. He has a very unique body. But the like the inner will to compete was something that just is off the charts for him. Would you say that was similar to what you saw in terms of his competitiveness? Absolutely. I mean, he, you know, there's many, many practices uh, that I can remember. Um, you know, the lightweights were on our, our – our workout room, the dungeon, was a long, narrow uh, box, basically. I mean, it was probably as wide as this room. Uh, but, Is that it? Yeah. It, well, it was maybe a little bit, but, okay. it, was, but it, was, it was like a mile long. So the, the lightweights, you know, it was synchronized. The lightweights, you know, the middle, you know, everybody, all, and the heavyweights were on the, you know, all the way by the door going out to the... Uh, and then we had showers right off the wrestling mats, um, and then we had a uh, a uh, what is it a sauna okay. that was built into one of the showers that was right off the mats. Um, and I I can remember you know John hated to run, I mean hated to run, uh, but he would he just liked to wrestle. I mean for hours. And I remember he would, they would set the clock and 45 minutes. And it was just like, you had, you didn't change partners. You just kept the same partner. And 
and if John was taken down or somebody took him down, even if it was what I would say out of bounds, he didn't give it. He didn't care about out. There was no out of bounds in practice. If it was, if it ended up in the shower, you kept wrestling. And it, it just, and then it, if you, if you ever let up or, or gave up a takedown to John, John would jump on you, and he would. I mean, I remember one time a guy took John down, and and John was so mad about it, he got up took this guy down, a kid from California was at his same weight, and basically just uh, popped him in the, in the eye, cut his eye. The guy transferred and, and never came back. John said, you never, ever, you know, John, John was like showing the way that you ever do that again, you know, this is what, you know, this is what's going to happen. Just like Michael Jordan, really. I mean, so I, much of it is very similar. And I thought, are you kidding me? And he did. He, he and, the, and the guy kind of fought back. And then John, you know, it was almost like, I'm, I'm the 136-pounder here. Don't ever, ever think you're going to even, you know, make this team. You might as well go back to where you came from. Because these guys were, again, Eddie Woodburn, some of these Joe C. guys from, uh, that he had brought with him. And this guy was a young stud that thought, you know, I'm going to, you know, John Smith this, John, whatever, I'm going to. So John one day said, come on, big boy, we're going to, we're going to wrestle. <laughs> and John just, and this guy took him, you know, John was having his way, but this guy, I guess, caught him or something. And, and John was frustrated, I guess, and just got up and just took him down and just began to wail on him. And I'm thinking, holy I mean, and the guy was had a bunch of stitches, and you know he ended up transferring um, what back would, to California. What was what, what was your? Were you thinking, man, that guy's kind of a dick, or it's like, hey, that guy's on another level. I better steer clear. That was just, you know, back then, you just that was just part of, it was just part of practice. I mean, you just, it was just, you know, you get hurt, you get cut. It doesn't mean you, you go off to the infirmary and get it stitched up. I mean, you basically just, you know, go towel it off, tape it up, whatever, get back out there. I mean, you just, you kept, it was just that mental toughness. And, and John kind of wanted him, the reaction to be, go get taped up and get your ass back out here and let's finish this. But the guy didn't come back. And that's what John wanted, push him out. He, want, he basically said, mentally, I'm going to, not only physically am I going to beat you up, Mentally, I'm gonna beat you up. Yeah, and it, it and that's kind of what the cowboy. Um, it, it's just tenacious. I mean, it's just it's that mental, uh, you know. And, and I'm sure it, at Iowa and some of these others, it, it's the same way. It's just it's just that mental. That's the edge of being good mm -hmm. or great. It's it's it separates the men from the boys. And what you talk about the wrestling room? When did they get the new wrestling room? Did you ever practice in it, or was that never? After? That was after, way after. What me. color were the mats in the old room? In the old room, they were orange. Wall all mats or no wall mats? Wall mat were black. Any like word like any letters on the mats or anything? No, just, just plain straight. just plain black with all orange. Um, you know. And underneath, 
you know, the mats were, they were wood blocks, basically, you know, kind of blow, or if you were to get thrown in a headlock or a throw or whatever, it would kind of break your fall where you would kind of bounce instead of, you know, just hit mm-hmm. and uh, kind of hurt yourself. But uh, why, why did John, last thing, then we'll move to 88 and then we'll wrap up. Why did John redshirt in 80s? Actually, here's a better question. Some things you read was that John wanted a redshirt after losing to Jim Jordan. And then I talked to Leroy and Leroy says, John did not want a redshirt, say he encouraged him to. What do you remember of it? Did John want a redshirt or did C want him to come out of redshirt to help the team? I can't get a straight record on it. Just the best of your memory. And that was... That was 85-86. So the first year you guys lived together, 85-86, John redshirted. And then he won Goodwill the summer of 86. Because in the book, here, here's what I'm trying to get at. In the book, Cowboy Up, John was saying how he's in like this great place. He's training. He's like making gains. He's working out at midnight. He's not worrying about folk style. And then a couple times throughout the year, Joe C would bring him in and say, we might need you to come in for the team this year. Um, well, Joe at the time, C, that's when you had, we had several guys that were all, I mean, you had Leo Bailey that was a you know an All American that you know he was really a thirty six pounder, but John was, and you know John had moved up you know he was too too big for one twenty five one twenty six you know his freshman year and when he went up to one thirty six no one really thought he was big enough so I think he really wanted to use that time to to get bigger to grow um, but Joe C wanted him to come out of red shirt because he thought we really had potential shot um, of, ma- of making a run at the nationals if we could maybe bump uh, or put no scove luke scove was 141 and then you had uh leo was in there because leo beat gil sanchez at the big eights that year well it was leo um and it was luke scove and uh but leo couldn't beat scove and Leo couldn't beat John. So John felt like, you know, I'm gonna, somebody's gonna be bumped out. I think he used that to, to get bigger um, because he was, he was a small 136 pounder, but still was, you know, could, could still win the, and I think he really wanted to concentrate on, on some of this international stuff that he was really becoming extremely, uh, you know, good at. So that was kind of my take, but, but, uh, you know, trying to remember Joe C's thinking is if John could win it at 136 and come out of red shirt, you let Leo and, and, uh, Scove duke it out and the, and the best man makes the team. The other one's odd, odd man out. Mm-hmm. So, but they were all we we had you know three three all Americans you know that duking it out just right and it, it was just no and nobody could cut to one twenty five yeah crazy um, how deep it was I mean you got to give Josie credit on beating Iowa finally um, but at the time people were very upset that Chesbro was like oh Chesbro was coach of the year in eighty four and he was like oh um, did you so were you recruited by C or by Chesbro? I was actually recruited by Ricky Stewart. And Ricky Stewart was the assistant coach 
with Joe C. Hmm. Um, okay. So you never really worked with Chesbro that much. Didn't, you know, I, I didn't work with Chesbro until after I got to, to college and I worked every summer with, with, with him and, you know, the cowboy camps traveled all over the country and, and really got to know Chesbro and, and Tom, well, Tommy. And then, you know, um, you know, his youngest son, uh, that, that, uh, you know, that wrestled the camps. I don't, I don't think, you know, when, when I think about the camps, Iowa does a couple of camps at Iowa city and that's it. You're talking about traveling the country with Chesbro. And think John did that at a year early age in high school, started doing that. What do you remember? Just, I don't even know about that. I didn't hit that in my research. Tell us about the camp circuit. Like where would you go? Would you travel like, like a kind of like a, Circus, everyone travel together, city to city. It's or? the funniest thing. We would load up, and uh, Tommy Chesbro would. He had a one of those tricked out uh, vans that basically you you had a couch in that you could lay out, and we would have four or five wrestlers, you know, that were going to work the camp, and we would we'd spend two weeks in California. We'd spend two weeks in in. Uh, Rexburg, Idaho. I mean, we went, we traveled all over the countryside for a month or a month and a half. And then we would end up in Stillwater and by July. So the whole month of June, we were out of state somewhere. And then we'd come back and end up in July, one of the hottest months of the year. And we would have really a, a month and a half of the uh, intensified training camps, which, you know, I do all the runs, all the far runs and the early morning stuff. And, and really high intensity, you know, camps. Yeah. But Chesbro kind of ran them. And uh, his son, you know, was kind of the guy that did all the moves because it was so synchronized. And it, it, so it was almost like uh, poetry. He would, he would talk and say, this is, you know, he didn't do the, you know, Tommy didn't do the the moves and the and this, or the. He would just say, uh, "Yeah, why? why Todd. Who? Yeah, Todd. Todd. He'd say, Todd, get out there and let's show him yada yada yada." And Todd would just be like a robot, just you know, programmed and just do it perfectly. And he would say, "Okay, uh, Todd, do this." You know, he he would talk him through every uh, situation and whatever he wanted to show as far as moves or. And it was just, we called Todd kind of the robot because he just, he had done it so much, he, he could do it in his sleep. And, and, it was, it was, and it was easy. Everybody learned it the right way. And it was just, I became a Chesbro fan because, you know, he didn't, he just didn't do it any other way, but Chesbro's way. And he was just a technical, like... He was a technical genius. And I couldn't, I couldn't... I even asked him one time, I said, why don't you like freestyle? He said, Corey, freestyle screws up your folk style because, you know, riding. And he said, you know, you become soft when you, when you uh, are freestyle because everything's done on your feet. You know, you, got folk, you, can, you can always do that freestyle stuff after your collegiate career is over. And that's what most of the Europeans, um, you know, compete to their very old age. He says, that's what the, that's what most of the collegians should be doing. But you know, don't, what do he say? Don't get there too early. 
um, because you don't want to ruin, you know, that was his philosophy of where Joe C was like, you know, wrestle all year round, freestyle, it's going to make you better for, he didn't have that philosophy. He, he was more, the more opportunity you get to, to wrestle on the mat, the better off you are. It's tough because I, one part of me says, Chesbro's approach, um, and if you've got to go. Oh, no, no, I'm fine. Chesbro's, to me, it's like, is that the right way to coach a college team? The, it was so structured, but at the same time, everyone loved him. You know, whereas C was like, and C was gone a lot at the beginning because of the car crash. Um, but I'll, you know what I mean? Like, is Chesbro's approach the right way to coach a college team, you think? Or is it too structured? You know, you know, you can... There's no, there's no right or wrong. I'm just curious. Like, it was uh, very structured. Yeah. Where Joe C's was, you know, wouldn't, I wouldn't say loosey-goosey, but it was. He let the wrestlers do... Each one of them had their own routine. He wouldn't, he wouldn't jack with it. You know, he, but he would try to perfect whatever you were good at. He would try to make it better yeah. in each individual where Chesbro, you do it this way. And that's the only way everybody. That's, um, that's Gable is more the opposite way, but Jay Robinson was the Chesbro. The time. Exactly. And you're, so we had that. Yep, um, you're exactly right. So let's talk about Iowa and we'll wind down with the Randy Lewis match in 88. Iowa was obviously, you know, the competitor at the time. Oklahoma State had been the power in the 50s, 60s. Was the hatred between Iowa and Okie State legit back in those days for you guys? Very much so. Talk about the, the rivalry a little bit. Because you beat them in 88 in the dual meet. Hang on just a second. Yeah. Uh, you have to turn anything off? Or? No. Well, I'll pause right here. You said Iowa was, you know, there was some hatred there. How much of that stemmed from what happened in 1984 with Leroy and Randy Lewis? A lot. Um, you know, I grew up. Uh, not an Iowa fan, but a Dan Gable fan. Um, and just the history that he, and what he did, and, and just what he did for the sport, and, and really how he, you know, those kids were, because he had a bunch of girls, um, I think mm -hmm. six girls or something, mm -hmm. never had a boy. So his, his wrestling teams were his boys. Those were his, that's his, those were his sons. I mean, I think he truly, you know, uh, he, you know, he, he basically was a mentor to all those guys and he truly loved those guys. He would do anything for them, just like any great coach would. But I learned to, he was kind of like, you know, the evil empire, you know, like in Star Wars, he just was one of those guys you just, he was on the dark side. And we were the we were the good guys, and they were the bad guys. And once got out of college, and all that rivalry kind of went away when you know training for the Olympics. And Gable was one of my coaches, and you know I disliked him all these years, but didn't really have a reason why other than just the rivalry. But once I really got to know him, he's the greatest guy in the world, and and wrestled with some of the Royce Alger and. And some of the, the guys that were that helped make Iowa great, I mean, they're the greatest guys ever. They're, they're no different than anybody else that wants to win. Right. They just... Uh, was Rico trading there at that time yep, with you guys? sure was. He lived with John a little bit, right? Yeah. I heard that one time. I was, talk, I was interviewing Perler, and he's like, yeah, I was at a, a freshman year. I was at a party, and John never went to parties. But he walked into this party, 
Enrico Ciparelli was with them, and he came up, he's like, I need to work out, let's go. And they left. And I, I get chills telling the story, I'm like, you're kind of a crazy person are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, we, in a good we, way. Enrico, you know, Ciparelli was a New York guy, just, um, you know, just kind of a ladies' man. He was, was a model. Yeah, yeah. and just, you good know. looking guy. And just, you know, Italian, just, you know, uh, just tougher than nails. But uh, anyway, I, I really gained a lot of respect for, sure. you know, for those Iowa guys because they just, uh, they were just so competitive that, you know, and their coach just backed them up. Just um, all the way. And so, I mean, and like when you think about 84, Gable was the Olympic coach. After the trials in 84, Leroy beat Randy. And then the arbitration, Gable sided with Randy. I don't know how much it was siding with him versus just he was testifying on what he saw, but either, and like Randy Lewis and the Smiths love each other. It's more so the people outside of those two parties really get upset with Gable and they get, they think that Stillwater was tampering with the Olympic trials, all that. It makes for a lot of fun, to be honest with you, and in telling these kind of stories. But it's also interesting to hear that that really escalated the rivalry. What happened in 84 between Randy Lewis and Leroy Smith? Well, you know, you look at, you look back at, you know, Leroy, you know, was, uh, just his dominance in college and he would get to the, uh, you know, the big dance where he's supposed to, he's ranked number one and he, you know, doesn't even, he lose, he doesn't even make, you know. The one year um, he went all in one. Yeah. And he was supposed to win it all. You know, John Smith's ranked number three in the country and doesn't even place. If he just would have wrestled up to his seed, they would have won the, you know, Chesbro wouldn't have been fired. Um, you think that? Absolutely. I bet John carries a little bit of that too, because he was so close with Chesbro. Well, and I remember the uh, the athletic director at the time was uh, Myron Roderick, and he, he basically gave Chesbro an ultimatum: if you don't win the nationals, you're gonna I'm gonna replace you. And that was that was a direct you know threat to say if you don't win it with this these guys, I'm gonna and he, he did just that. It's hard to argue with it. And everybody else, you know, Claire Anderson didn't have a very good tournament, I think, that no. year. Um, and John, you know, he was supposed to be, you know, at least be an All-American. He just is an All-American. They win. His only losses. He had three losses to Darkus. And Darkus was really good. And so I don't think they were that close. But to your point, he tied Darkus once at Iowa State. And so he's a fresh. And I guess the thing now. True freshmen are so common, it's not a big deal, but back then, true freshman wrestling were, was a very rare thing. Extremely. And I mean, and to be on that high level of a team, which I think is probably one of the one of the greatest college from top to bottom, was just, I mean, you, you just think, how in the world did they lose? Crazy. Um, and, you look, and you look at Iowa's guys, and I... You know, I scoured all these brackets. They had some great guys too, but they were all young. They were, I mean, they were yeah. beating these, you know, guys that are upperclassmen that you know should be crushing them. Yeah. But again, they had no fear. Uh, Gable had instilled guys. They put their pants on just like we do. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go crush them. We're going to we're going to beat their ass. Yeah. And that's how that's what they thought that. This is our tournament. This has always been our tournament. We're going to win again. <laughs> I mean, that's their mentality is, you know, just like Penn State today. This is our tournament. It's yeah. our time. There's no doubt that they're going to get it done. 
and I mean, at least now, the way they wrestle, Penn State wrestles like that. You mentioned John went one and one that year. What do you remember about John processing losses? Like, how would he handle a loss? Well, we go back to the Gil Sanchez. He, John didn't lose very much, but but when he did, um, he took it like a man. He, uh, you know, I've always been taught be a good loser mm-hmm. as hard as it is to do. But whatever, just remember, uh, you know, that moment because you don't want to feel that way again. Mm-hmm. And I think John would do that same thing is he would, after I think a loss, he would break down, okay, what happened? What, where did this, where did I make my mistakes? What could I have done differently? I mean, he correct, corrected those things against those opponents that gave him more, the most fits. And that's kind of what he, he became just watching film when film wasn't cool back then. You know, nobody wanted to watch film, but he would study his opponents and what they did, how they did it. Okay, what do I need to do to counter this? Or, and he really became a, you know, a, a student of the game. Um, but not necessarily by watching video, but, but basically just watching opponents um, and, and learning from mistakes and losses. But he didn't lose that much uh, no. in college. I mean, after Gill, his, he went 131 in a row, and then he lost to Randy Lewis. And this is like just the perfect twist because in 88, you know, John smokes Joe Melchiori at the Nationals. That's the year you all American. He goes to the, the Olympic qualifier in Topeka, Kansas. Randy Lewis comes out of retirement, is weighing like 163 pounds, cuts down to 136, and then beats John. And it's like, that's the same guy that beat Leroy. And, you know, I interviewed Randy for about three hours last Friday about it. And he's like, you know, those matches between John and Randy, those were two of the best guys in the world at that time. Because Randy was a defending Olympic champ. John was a defending world champ. I think, I think for the first time, I think John was mentally relapsing back to Leroy's uh, problems with, with Randy. Because Randy was a little unorthodox, you know, he always was trying to, you know, throw and do funky stuff. And that wasn't John's style. And I think John gave him too much respect. Um, mm-hmm. I really think John gave him too much respect. And then after that happened, you know, when it, it came to the trials, I think John smoked him, didn't he? Too straight. Yeah, it wasn't even close. But I think he gave him too much respect just from the simple fact, holy shit, this is the guy that beat my brother off the Olympic team. And, you know, I, I don't... A lot of just, bad feelings there. Just, just mentally, I think he, he wanted to win so bad it, it, that first time that he just couldn't get it done. Yeah. So he went back and, you know, mentally did all the things, you know, this guy's, he can't beat me. Transfixed himself almost, you know? And what do you, you know, what was it like watching someone who you grew up with win the Olympic gold medal in 1988? You know, at the Goodwill Games, I remember watching him. Um, I remember he called, uh, he called me or his mother or family member and said, because of the time difference in Russia and, and, uh, 
they said, because I knew he was in the finals and, you know, they, the broadcast was going to be, it's always taped. Um, and we, I couldn't wait to the next day because it, it was delayed. And they called and said, John won the gold medal. And I thought, are you freaking kidding me? He won the gold medal. In the, in, in the Olympics, um, I forget the guy. Sarkeesian. Sarkeesian. And just in small talk, he would, he would tell me who he thought was going to be you know, his big challenge. And Sarkeesian was big burly guy, very strong, just didn't do much, kind of a defensive type guy. And John being so offensive, he's, he was more passive because he said, I'm just going to have to change my style. And, and I said, why do you have to change your style? Just be, you know, just do what you do. And he said, well, that's just it. He thinks that I'm going to do what I need. I've got to, again, playing to the mental aspect is his coaches are telling him exact, watch for the low single. What do, and at lo and behold, you know, he's, uh, you know, basically, uh, headshucked him. Literally, nearly across the mat, you know, something he, they had never accounted on or even saw. And, you know, he sh- head shucks him down and just as simple. But again, those are things that John, you know, would pull out of his hat at the perfect time that nobody saw it coming. That, you know, back in high school, that's all he had was that head shuck. And he would shuck you all the way across the mat. Um, you know, he had that chin chin whip that just about broke everybody's neck. And then he developed that low single, um, you know, and he could throw you from anywhere. Yeah. Uh, just, he also had that high C on the elbow too. He would, he would drop, he on the elbow, he would drop to his knees literally. And, and you would just kind of float into his high crotch and he would just, it was just, it was beautiful. I mean, it was just like synchronized, you know, he dropped to the ground and you had nowhere to go but over his shoulder, and you couldn't stop it. It's like, the, it's like the guy falls over. If you watch him wrestle Sergey, it's like Sergey literally falls over. Because the momentum he had from that, you know, pulling that shoulder and dropping down so low, where most people can't get to that 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 low, because he was just his legs were just, you know, very, uh, you know, Kendall Cross was kind of you know that way Gumbyish, but John with his hips and his knees could just get so low with all of us and then be able to, you know, just power through stuff with his hips that it was just amazing. He talks about the most important thing for him wasn't even the low single, but was his ability to anticipate different finishes. That's yeah. You know, like he would see all these situations in his head, you know, you're coming up through the middle, you got an ankle biter. How are you going to defend that? You know, he, there, there is nobody, and he would spend hours with somebody just on his shoulders in between, you know, and say, okay, um, shift to your right or, you know, in different positions. And, and if you went around his waist, how he's going to, re- you know, react. And, and, and that's what Hickman did, you know, for hours. And it's just like, you know, how do you get a partner just to, you know, do that kind of stuff? But it's just, yeah. I mean, for hours. You mentioned he talked about Sarkisian a little bit, saying that was his big competition. Would he talk about opponents in wrestling a lot when you guys were in the house? 
Yeah, you know, one like you know, Gil for sure. That that year was you know one of his nemesis. Um, but once he once he got to the senior level and was on you know these world teams, he really studied you know those guys that were his main competition. Um, you know, and he would kind of joke that, hey, these guys are so damn strong, but but really they're not that strong if you get the right angle. And I mean, they can't they can't power out of it because you know you you you've got the angle on them or you this or that. And you know, it was just he he would he would talk about the, you know, he, but he wouldn't give him he wouldn't give him you know he would respect him, but he wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't give him so much respect that he just said, and this guy has, you know, mentally he just, I can beat anybody in the world. I yeah. mean, I can. So his way of, just like with Randy Lewis, I mean, he kind of, I think he used that to propel him to, there ain't nobody ever beat me again. Right. I'm never going to let, and I think he gave Randy too much, too much credit. And, and was, and, it, was it amazing to you to see how, Far he had come from '84 to '88 when he won the Olympic gold medal. Uh, he had done more. John did more, and he wasn't a very good high school wrestler. He was a two-time state champion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he was just average. He was good, and he wasn't a very good international wrestler. Uh, Got fourth at Fargo his senior year. Like, you know what I mean? There was three dudes in this country better than him in freestyle. Yeah, and then he, you know, and he was. You know, he was just oh, I mean, I mean, I had better records. Oh, you know, so you were school. on, you were on the dream team in '85. Uh, you know, you were a high school American. You had far better credentials than him coming in. So I thought, man, if he's improved this much from his senior year to his freshman year, and I, I attributed a lot of it because he he had some big shoes to fill with Leroy, and he wanted to show everybody, hey, I'm, and he just dumb, you know, went crazy. Um, and just got so good and, you know, in one year, but then was devastated at the nationals when you really, when, when it really counts. And I, I think that really brought him back down to reality of, Hey, this can happen to anybody. Did he ever talk about that with you? No, you know, we, we talked about, uh, you know, I don't. I don't think he really wanted. To, he doesn't really like to bring up the Leroy, or no, no. Uh, I mean, one and one at nationals in '84. No, because that was before I got there, and, about, and yeah, that's um, yeah. But I knew it. It, it, it crushed him um, because he loved Tommy Chesbro. I mean, that was a dad to him, a second dad to him, and he hated to see Tommy, um, you know, get fired, and he felt. I think. A little responsible, and John had a little bit of red ass, I think, for uh, Joe C because he had wrestled for such a structured coach, and then Joe C from California comes in, Lucy Goosey, and and John just didn't respect Joe. Well, he you wasn't know. there that whole year, really. That for is that what you remember? Yeah. But Mark said he was like, dude, I never saw Joe that first year, pretty much at all, because that car. Yeah, well, and then you had Leroy was an assistant, and uh, with. Uh, uh, the guy from USA Wrestling, Navy coach. Oh, Burnett. Burnett, yeah, he was a uh, coaching with with C. With C. But Joe kind of stayed away from um, 
John, uh, just because John, I don't think, he didn't like Joe in the beginning because of Chesbro. But I think the turning point for John really warming up to, is when Joe realized that, hey, this deal's bigger than me. I've got to bring some other people in. And he invited Tommy to come to one of the practices and show some things and, 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 and kind of put himself, you know, he realized that, hey, I need some help. Can you come, come, come help me? And Tommy was just, when you want me there, I, I would love to do that. So Tommy was in the room with, uh, with Joe. And that was, I think, at that time, John thought, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty cool thing to do. Mark Perry almost shot me when I said this, but I go, sounds like to me like Joe C should have been the head coach and Chesbro should have been like the top assistant. That would have been unstoppable if you would have had that, you know. Well, this was, you and know, this is after the fact. I'm just saying, like hypothetically, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying, like because uh, Chesbro still worked for the department. Yeah, he was an he assistant. He wasn't fired. He was just they re. Assigned him. Uh, yeah. He was assistant athletic director at that time. But, 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 you know, Tommy still felt guilty for not winning the nationals. He really wanted to help the, the wrestling team, mm -hmm. and he really, and I think Joe C thought, you know what, Todd Chesbro isn't one of the top recruits in the country, and he's in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and he might go somewhere else because of how I'm, you know. Suppose I, I'm. Yeah. He said, "I, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that says I need all the help I can get." Yeah. So he, that's when he said, "Tommy, I need your help," and that's when they started working these, uh, you know, the camps in the summer together, and just you know, it became they became you know, I wouldn't say great friends, but just their philosophies were totally different. But their vision of wanting to be the best and wanting to be great, you know, the best at it and it, just different styles, but they conflicted in so many different ways. But to have them both come together, you know, at the time, because I knew Tommy was just, he loved the sport so much. It just, it's what he wanted, you know, the last thing he wanted was to be fired. Yeah. And, uh, he was a coach of the year. He was undefeated two years in a row. It shouldn't have happened. Myron Roderick. I know he's a legend, but that was not the right move. And my, I mean, no one would agree with that, but you got to do what you got to do. I mean, Roderick was the king for a reason. Um, very last question of the night. When you think about John winning in 88, what emotions does that evoke for you? Just pride, you know, that, hey, I, um, here's a guy that, you know, from Dell City, Oklahoma, uh, never would have dreamed that somebody that's, really still in college to have this kind of success this early um, it's just amazing he won more world and, and Olympic titles before he you know was 25 I mean he's got to be the youngest mm -hmm. of all time and to be just to know somebody uh, and, and, and I remember when he came back we met him at the airport and I just wanted to see the, I just wanted to see, I just wanted to touch a gold medal. Um, but not only did I get to touch it, we get to, we got to display it at this, you know, Stillwater house on our shelf that, you know, we, he was so pride, prideful of those, those, uh, those lacquer boxes that 
but he sure was proud of that gold medal that he put up there on he put that above everything it was on the shelf at oh, the yeah. house displayed for a little while yeah it must have been huge for someone for like the oklahoma city area for someone to win the gold medal like that it must have been massive oh it was you know it was just it was great for the state especially oklahoma city to have you know again it was almost gratifying for just the smith family all the things they've been through with with leroy and then john you know he fulfilled that you know and then then here comes Pat, who, uh, you know, even the first four timer, you know, you just, it's, it just, it, it just makes you happy for, um, for not only the individual, you know, John, but it's just, I'm happy for, you know, just to be on the same team and to be associated with, you know, the uh, Oak, Oklahoma State and just associated with, with all of it. It just, it's almost, you're a part of his success. Thanks for listening to this episode with Corey Bays. To find past episodes, please go to wrestlingchangemylife.com and follow us on Instagram at wrestlingchangemylife.